Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. How many Christians would say that they think it's to their advantage that Jesus is no longer on earth? I mean, think about it. If I was like, hey, at your church, Jesus could come be your senior pastor. You'd be pretty excited about that. I mean, pumped, yeah, I'd be pumped, right? Yeah. We've got a good pastor. But you got I'd a good pastor, excited. but I mean, Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, come on. Are you more excited that you've got a church of people filled with the Spirit than you would be to have Jesus himself as your senior pastor? Caleb Lindgren. Hello. Welcome to The Calling. This is your second time on The Calling. Guess yeah. what? What? You're the first person who's ever been on The Calling twice. Twice. Other than me. I've been on several really? times. Really? Well, I'm so honored. I like to have myself on quite a bit. You don't run this thing, do you? <laughs> People are listening to this and rolling their eyes and going, yeah, we know, Rich. <laughs> so tell me, what's what's going on in The Calling? Well, first, I want to talk about what's going on in the hallways of CT. Oh, What are you most it. excited about right now that you're working on? Um... Honestly, I'm really excited about um, opportunities for one of our verticals, Christian history. Christian history. Right. So we have um, Check a it out. whole huge archive of great content on Christian history, and we're looking at ways to really bring a lot more awareness to that because it's really, really good stuff. And yeah. I think it's um, a great resource, and I'm uh, excited about looking at so more of that. It's actually like a really cool resource right now. You can go to Christian History. Absolutely. It's What is it? ChristianityToday.com slash history? That is correct. So ChristianityToday.com slash history. You can just go there and like pick an era. I love this. You can yeah. pick an era and read all about the era. You can pick a person like Martin Luther or... Uh, other yeah. guys. I should know more other guys. <laughs> well, that's why you should go on Christian history. John to learn Calvin. about more other guys. I know John that Calvin. Are not just Reformation guys. Though we John love the Reformation Owen. here. <laughs> I know other Reformation guys. <laughs> yeah. Um it's been a big hit so far and we've barely done anything with it, but we're about to start building it out big that time. That is true. So here at CT we like to do soft launches. Mm-hmm. Or an announcement of an announcement. And an, <laughs> we did not do that. <laughs> we definitely don't do that. Well, we, I want to talk about what's on the podcast today, but first I wanted to t- take a moment to point out that the calling is paid for by subscribers like you um, i'm not talking to caleb at this moment I'm talking no, I'm to you sure the listener people whose earbuds are in um the, if you're a subscriber we want to thank you and if you're not we want to encourage you to consider becoming a subscriber we have a very good special deal for you right now christianity today magazine offers redemptive but honest coverage of the people events and ideas shaping the church and culture as a subscriber you'll get every year 10 award-winning print issues two of those are double issues so it's basically like 12 issues in my opinion um tablet and pdf editions of each issue full web access to christianitytoday.com our full first issue is up right now to read online archives dating back to 1956 so for those who are listeners to the calling we have a special deal for you because we care about you and we think you deserve to have a subscription to christianity today so we're giving it to you for ten dollars ten dollars a year all you have to do is go to orderct.com slash the calling 
That's orderct.com slash the calling. Some people had trouble with discount codes last week. So we said, do we really need a discount code? And the answer was not really here. Do this. Go to orderct.com slash the calling and subscribe. That is awesome. Um, by doing that, you make the magazine possible. You make everything we do online possible, including this very podcast, especially this very podcast. Because when you subscribe, we'll be like, whoa, look at all these people who subscribe because of this very podcast. And yeah. then we'll keep doing the podcast. So I got to talk with J.D. Greer. No way. He's the pastor of Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. He wrote a book called Gaining by Losing, mm. which is about church planting, but even more than church planting, the idea of church multiplication mm. and how churches should be sending people out constantly. Mm -hmm. One of the things that he does is like, he's like, well, we got a lot of people at our church. We better get rid of some of them, mm -hmm. which is a counterintuitive idea. But it actually means that your church has a lot of influence and in particular gospel influence over the culture, which awesome. I like. More interestingly to me, he's running for president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And oh, so right around... There, I thought you were talking about the president of the United States. And I was like, another one? I know. Actually, in the podcast, I say, you're running for president. <laughs> In the context of a Southern Baptist Convention conversation. Uh, but everybody it, gets it's, excited. It's like, a jarring. <gasps> another yeah. option. It's a jarring thing. Please. Yeah. Another option. That's right. So like, I have a question about that. Yeah. Um, which perhaps, stay tuned. Does one ha like, do you have a platform when you run for yeah, president? Of we talked about platform. Interesting. So you hear more about that on the podcast. Thanks for listening. Um, we're here at Exponential Conference, and the water situation is amazing. Amazing. It's really good. The snack situation is better than I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, what else? It's coffee. Like, it's like a big party. Coffee, yeah. Yeah, we're a big party. We're just, we, every, there's food and entertainment and all I've kinds never snacked so much in my entire life. Yeah, well, you ought to go to the Southern Baptist Convention, because then it's just nonstop eating of fried food. <laughs> I've been to a few Southern Baptist conventions because I am Southern Baptist. Nice. Um, okay, so you're in Raleigh, Durham. What's your favorite thing about that area? The colleges, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, you know, Tobacco Road is the road that connects UNC. That's a cool name for a road. Yeah, UNC Chapel Hill. And if I could go back and do it again, I might name it Tobacco Road Church. But uh -huh. uh, UNC Chapel Hill and Duke University, which you know, some say, well. Just about everybody says the greatest rivalry in basketball. Some yeah. say the greatest rivalry in college sports, period. Mm -hmm. uh, some Alabama-Auburn fans would probably uh, <laughs> not agree with that. But uh -huh. um, but it's just – I mean, it's just – it's a contagious environment. It's um, – you know, uh, Forbes magazine ranks the Raleigh-Durham area called the Triangle as the number one educational hub of America. Wow. And has for the last six years in a row because of the quality and the amount of college students that are in the area. And so it's a natural sending place for us. And that's a big part of our church's calling is sure. that we're, uh, you know, we, uh, we kind of like to think of our church as a spiritual cyclone. We pull people in and fling them back out, you yeah. know, around the, around the country and around the world. So it's just, it adds a, it adds a, a, a very vibrant atmosphere. It's, uh, it's in the South, but it's, I always think of us as like the hole in the Bible belt, you know, like a, the Bible belt goes around it, but it's sort of, sort of, so there's a it. lot of like non-churched people in that yeah. area. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the majority of people at Duke University are not from the South. They're yeah. from the North. Uh, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's an amazing, amazing place. Cool. So, uh, what would you say is your personal calling? Yeah. God called me to first and foremost to the mission field. I went to school, didn't go to school to go into ministry. I went to school to go to law. And while I was there, two things happened. One is God gave me a vision 
of really what it meant for 2.2 billion people in the world who had never heard the name of Jesus. And up until that point, I've been kind of waiting on on God to spell out for me and my Cheerios what I was supposed to do, waiting on that to spell out, you know, go to Afghan, you know, whatever. All they ever spelled out was ooh over and over again. Um, so, so I, I yeah, I hate that. Yeah, so that it wouldn't I wouldn't get the whole up for my cereal, but um, but I just you know just the the crushing weight. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but just the crushing weight of that many people that had never heard the name of Jesus. It felt like I. It, it, this happened to you while you were in law school. While well, yeah, in preparation, it was always. In fact, this one particular moment where I just really the Lord's presence was so real. Uh, uh, it was reading the Book of Romans before class one day. It's just like I don't know, just the vision of that many people. I, I felt like um, imagine you were walking through downtown in some big city, and you're right beside the train tracks, and there's a kid. Who's crippled on the train tracks? Right, but he's still alive. And the train's coming. You don't get down on your knees and ask God like what His will is in that situation. You know what His will is. You pick the kid up, and it felt like you know I'm like, oh Lord, you know what's your will? I got to find your will. And God's like, my will's not lost. You don't have to find it. I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so I was like, I, my prayer changed. And I know it sounds very subtle, but it changed from God, I'll do whatever you tell me to do, to God, please let me go and tell people about Jesus. And I felt like the Lord said, that's the question I've been waiting on. Go. You know, at our church, we teach that calling is not something that God gives as this mystical moment for a sacred few super Christians. Calling is what God gives to every believer. Um, the call to follow Jesus is the call to get involved in missions in some way. And so, you know, in that moment, I kind of said, all right, um, the question is where, how can my life best be used? To bring other people to Jesus. Now, not everybody should do what I did by any means. God uses a lot of people in law, um, and He created them in His image, and they make great lawyers and architects, and you know everything in between. But you know, for me, I just knew like I want to go to the mission field, and so I felt like the Lord said, "You can go." Well, at the same time, um, I'm leading a Bible study on my college campus that just, I mean, really just takes off. I mean, it goes from like three people to several hundred, and I was like, I love teaching the Bible, and I love teaching it to college students, so. Um, I go overseas to um, uh, be a missionary in a, a Muslim language people group, and God made clear um, that what my, instigated that mission trip. Uh, well, I went to seminary. My seminary had a program right. um, that you should do two years in the United States and then two years overseas. I was a guinea pig. So they made you go. Well, you 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 signed up for like the program. The pro- okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I signed yeah. up for that program, and they, I mean, they dropped me off. In the middle of nowhere. I was a total guinea pig. I could say, when I got there, all I could say in their language was, hi, my name is JD. Where's your bathroom? My house is on fire. <laughs> you know, and from there I figured it out. Um, so, but anyway, he let me know that my role in missions was not going to be, at least at this point in my life, to be over there myself, but to be a part of ascending organization. And, you know, that's the summature. So when God, when, when I go back and I start working on my PhD, um, this little kind of sleepy Baptist church, uh, asked me to be their pastor. And I was like, uh, you know, so I, I said yes, mainly because I wanted a sort of stable, you know, job. And I don't know, God just, it was, it was very traditional church. It's certainly not like what it is today, but, um, it was the Homestead Heights Baptist Church. And a lot of people started to come to faith in Christ. And, and then it just sort of, it became what it is today, you know, in, in this church of 10,000 that's sending out all these. What's interesting is when I first got there, there were no college students. There were two technical college students. One of them was at Durham Tech, and the other one had dropped out of college, and they were engaged to each other. Wow. So we're talking, you know, not a bright future for the college ministry. Well, about six weeks after I got there, college students discovered our church. And by discovered, I mean one week, three came, and the next week, 300. 
and they all wow. showed up in two cars. <laughs> you wow. know, so college, how did that happen? They just travel in herds. You know, like oh, the, the three went back. Like, the three hey, you gotta, cool kids went back and said. And said, so you got to check this out. Uh-huh. You know, So it really is our, our attendance basically quadrupled in the space of about three weeks. And our weekly giving average went up $13.48 because, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. you know, college students are. Yeah. So um, anyway, at that point, it just became a very permanent part of our church. Now, our church is not all college students. You know, it's probably 2,000 students on the weekend. The other 8,000 are you know, people my age, you know, in their 40s or 30s. But it was just, it, it was a very uh, significant part of, of our, and, and looking back on it now, I see that the way that God is fulfilling my call to the mission field is as a pastor who sins. So he's never relinquished that call to the mission field. And it's just, it's just, this is how I'm doing it. We were, I was having a conversation at the lunch table the other day with some people. We were reminiscing about college. And um, so we were talking about a few of our colleges had like church fairs mm-hmm. where churches would come and like show off, have set up booths and mm-hmm. say, this is what we're about. Right. Check us out. And someone said, which I thought was a really interesting question, what, why do churches want college students so bad that they go to these church fairs to seek them out? What is it that college students bring? I mean, I know that like it's good to reach out to every person, right. but what is it specifically about college students that makes you want to bring them into a church? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. For us, I'd say it's three. There's three things yeah. that come to mind. Because it's not money, as you mentioned. It's like, definitely not money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although we have occasionally a student that will I have one that writes back every year and just sends a check and just says you right. impacted me at the right time in my life and yeah, I'm that's bro- good. yeah I'm wait I'm just trying to win I'm just trying to get some professional future professional athlete from <laughs> UNC Chapel Hill to <laughs> teach him to tithe before he goes off to and then we'll be set but it's mainly um, number one is just I'd say the greatest mission field in America is the college campus and it's it's a time when people make these huge decisions and so I, if you're going to think about how to change. I mean, all the, you look back in history at all the great awakenings, they're going to start with people that age. And so mission field, um, two is, um, they just add so much vibrancy. I mean, college students worshiping in a church, it does something to older people to watch, uh, people, you know, that age. Uh, in fact, you know, just, you mentioned money. Um, I got a, uh, this, I've been there two or three years and I got a, um, basically a guy who was from, all the way across the United States, wasn't anywhere near us, but he visited our church one Sunday. Been so overwhelmed at the amount of students and with the joy it brought to his heart. He, you know, basically writes us a check for $180,000. So I went back and told the, the students, I'm like, I'm like, you guys are covered for a while in terms of offering. This guy's paid your, your, your. so all right. But anyway, so the, so the vibrancy, right? He pledged $180,000. Let me say it that way. Uh, then the, th- <laughs> the third reason is, um, they're the, they're the ones who are going to be going into other countries and the yeah. top business area. So, you know, the, the way we teach them to interpret the call of God is whatever you're good at, do that well for the glory of God and then do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. And I think that's something you can tell to every person, regardless of their giftings. So God didn't make you all to be preachers or missionaries. He made some of you to be dentists and doctors and business professionals. Whatever you're good at, do that well to his glory, to the glory of God. But then choose to do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. And that might be in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. It might be in Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, it might be in Washington, D.C. Um, but carry the gospel with you as you go. And so we were excited because there are future missionaries. And we tell all of them. In fact, um, we do an interview with them. The ones that are really, you know, really connected to our church, we're doing an interview with them. They're senior, senior year, and we say, um, will you let us help you determine where the best place is to pursue 
the, the most strategic place. And so every year we have, you know, um, you know, 50, 60 of them at minimum. They, they go when they uh, live on one of our, our church plants. So this year we're planning four churches, one in uh, New York City, one in Los Angeles, one in Orlando, and one in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And uh, these teams are – they take teams with them from our church, and a lot of the people on these teams are college students. And I'm like, you got to get a job somewhere. Why not get a job in a place where God's doing something strategic? You were a Christian when you went to law school? Mm-hmm. No, I went into a pre-law program. Okay. God called me before right. I actually went, okay. you know. Got it. So how uh, how long had you been a Christian at that point? You know, I, I was raised in a home where my parents were brought to faith in Christ the year that I was born. And so, you know, I, I always say— like a miracle. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. It had nothing to do with me. But um, I always say the, the only drug problem I ever had was getting drugged to church. Uh-huh. You know, so uh, I was raised— What does that mean? Yeah. Getting drugged to church. I, I just get drugged to church, you know, like three times a week. Okay, a Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I didn't night. know if there was a deeper meaning to that No, or no, no deeper meaning at all. Weird they, communion thing. Yeah, I know. They, they would just drag me to church, and I, I, I was always there, you know, three mm-hmm. times a week. But all that says, I, I was raised in a place where the gospel was really well known. And when I was five years old, I, you know, asked Jesus into my heart. And, you know, was it real? I don't know. Um, I, I don't know if I can know, but I know at 16, when I was about 16 years old, Jesus was not the most important thing in my life, nor was he really even Lord of my life. And God brought me to a point of surrender. Was that a, a time of repentance or was it my actual salvation? I don't know. But I know that at that point, you know, what it meant to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior really became real. So I, I don't know. I, I'd kind of count my true conversion at about 15, 16 years old. And so by the time I'm in college, it's, you know, I've been walking with Jesus for about four years. And you're in college and you decide to go into the ministry. Mm-hmm. What did you do at that moment? Did you go into another program? Did you? No, I finished out the you law finished, program. Yeah. Uh, finished out the pre-law program and then just went and enrolled in seminary. Okay. Um, I had, you know. So seminary was the next step. Seminary basically. was the next yeah. step just because I thought, you know, I feel like you need to get some education and maturity before you go try to lead people. So uh, my, my pastor back home had told me, you know, don't go in the ministry unless you absolutely have to. So I was doing everything. So you're you know, trying just, not to do it. I was that. trying not to do it. And then God <laughs> said, this is what I got. Right. Did your parents, were they excited for you they to were, go in the ministry? They were. Yeah. They, they, they've been the biggest and most godly influence. I mean, my parents aren't perfect, but I can't imagine a better home for somebody to be raised in. And I hope that I can provide the same home for my kids. But, you know, I mean, when I first felt like I was called the mission field, that was, uh, I mean, it was tough. Not because they didn't love Jesus, love missions, but it's just tough for your you know, when you think your son's going to grow up and raise your grandkids right down the road to be like, ah, I think I'm going to go live, you know, in, in Indonesia. You know, and it, it was, I, I know it was hard for my mom, but I remember they said something one time that, um, man, it was just so impacting. Like, you know, we gave you to Jesus when you were born. And if Jesus wants to take you and use you as a missionary around the world, then, you know, we're not going to stand in the way. We're going to, we're going to cheer you on and say, there's nothing better you, your life could be used for. You have kids, right? I do. Yeah. How four. Many? Four. Four. Um, yeah. 13. Oldest is 13. Uh-huh. Karis is 13. Allie's 10. Raya is eight. And Adam, my only son, is six years old. Wow. So you're starting to think about that with your 13-year-old probably. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, in the dedication of one of my books, you know, I, I talk about Psalm 127, which says, like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior. That's what children are to the godly. And what, what's an arrow for? An arrow is not for you to keep in your house and display on the wall. An arrow is you pull it back in the bowstring of faith and you launch it into the heart of the enemy. Well, you know, that's my role is to raise them up for the mission of God. And that might be 
here in the United States, it might be right down the road, or it might be in Afghanistan. I don't know. This is like a weird personal tangent, but it seems to me like right now, I have a, a son who's 11 months old. And right now, I, that feels exciting to me, Yeah, sending him away. But thinking about it logically, it seems like over time, as he becomes older and he's 13, it seems like that might start to hit home a little more does is that is that sort of your experience well i mean i don't even know 13 is when you realize that i i think it probably comes more about 19 you know when you're thinking about you know because sacrifices always look more glorious when you're far away from them when you're right up on them they don't feel that awesome but you know certainly that is something that from the very beginning you know for you and i mean you and your wife are going to be pretty far ahead in terms of already thinking about your children that way, then if you, you waited to the end, like, oh my goodness, what's happening now? Because right. I true. can't tell you how many students at our church feel called the mission field and their parents tell them no. Christian right. parents in good churches, but they're like, no, this is, I'm not going to do this. Because it's natural to have that negative impulse, I mm-hmm. think, to yeah. have the protective impulse. But it seems like if you could have some time to work through that, as opposed to the moment it's brought up. Right. But if you can work through that beforehand, it seems mm-hmm. like it would be a valuable. Yep. What What has been the thing and since you started ministry that you've come to value most in the context of the local church? Uh, well, the local church is not an event you attend. It's a community to belong to. And it's a community that uh, is there to engage and inspire and lead people into ministry. So at our church, we kind of think of it like, think of it as three ships, or you can be one of three ships. Um, You got churches that seem like they're a cruise liner, and that's what they want to do is the best services for Christians. You know, hey, we're better than all the other churches on the street. Our music's better. Our kids' ministry is better. Um, that's obviously very consumeristic and, you know, I'd say wrong. <laughs> a lot of churches think of themselves as a battleship. And a battleship, that's better than a cruise ship because, you know, you're there for battle. But the thing about a battleship is the battleship fires the bullets. They're the guns. They're, you know, that's where the, that's the, the kind of the locus of, of where the battle happens. The best analogy for the church, in my opinion, is the uh, aircraft carrier. Because an aircraft, my, my grandfather served on an aircraft carrier in World War II and he used to tell me all these stories and, He'd be like, son, the last place an aircraft carrier wants to fight its battles is anywhere near the aircraft carrier. If it, you know, if the battle's on the aircraft carrier, then that's a bad day. He says, you know, the goal is to load up the planes and send them to where the battle ought to be fought. And so that's kind of how we are in our church is like, we, we come together and we're a huddle and we encourage each other for people to go out and run the play throughout the week to, you know, to go take the battle to where the enemy is. Of, of the 40 miracles in the book of Acts, 39 of them happen outside of the church. You know, so you think about it. I, I tell What's our people. What's the 40th? Oh, it's killing of Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, gosh. So that's not, that's, even a, that's not even a great one. Yeah. So what I tell our people is I have access as a pastor who works inside the church to 140th of the power of God. 39, 40th. So what God wants to do, he's going to do out in the community. So my role is not to do the ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 you know, it says that that God gave pastors for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So according to that verse, who does the actual ministry? Not the pastor, the saints do it. So I tell our people, based on that verse, when I became a pastor, I left the ministry. I ceased to be a saint in that verse, and I became a, a pastor. And so now my role is to is to equip them. And that's, I think, the best part about the local church is the commu- it's a, a community that comes together so that it can better be and represent the body of Christ in the community. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. 
Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. You wrote a book called Gaining by Losing. Right. Let's talk about what that book is about. It's basically saying like every like you're saying churches should have a sending mindset, right? right. They should have a mindset, kind of what you were talking about. Um, they should be sending people out away as much as possible. And there's there's a church planting element too, right? Yeah, absolutely. So gaining by losing is written for um, Christian leaders and just you know really committed Christians in churches that want to think about what the mission of God is and how we're supposed to be involved in it. And the paradox of the mission of God is that we gain most in the kingdom when we take our hands off of what God gives us and we lose it. So whether we're talking about our money or whether as churches we're talking about our leaders and our resources, the way the kingdom of God gains, it's like a seed. You know, there's two things you can do with a seed. Most seeds you can grind up and eat as food. Like grain is that way. Or you can plant it. But now if you plant it, though, the dilemma is you can't eat it as food. It's in the ground. But it has the potential to multiply into a harvest. So churches and Christians, God has given them these seeds, resources, money, leaders, and you can hoard it, hold it, or you can plant it and let God bring the harvest. So what that book is trying to show is, is here's how you build a sending culture into your church, and here's how you gain by losing. But the book is really built upon a previous book that I wrote that was not just for like Christian leaders and you know church leaders and all that. It was it was a book that was written for ordinary people called Jesus Continued. The subtitle of that book is Why the Spirit Inside You is Better Than Jesus Beside You. And it was the idea that that when Jesus um, left the earth, he made these astounding promises about the Holy Spirit that I don't think that most Christians take seriously. Uh, most Christians aren't quite sure what to do with the Holy Spirit. On one side, you got like, you got some traditions that are like the Holy Spirit's in everything and you got these weird mystical things. And I felt, you know, on the way home, I saw this and the Holy Spirit was saying that, you know. And then the other side, you got people that are just like, I mean, I always saw our church, a lot of people believe in the Holy Duet, God the Father and God the Son. And if they do have a, a part of the Trinity, it's God the Holy Bible, you know, Father, Son, and Bible. Um, but you know, the, the Spirit, what do you do with the Spirit? Well, so here's the promises that Jesus gave. Um, John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, Jesus said, it is to my advantage that I go away because if I don't go away, then I won't send the Holy Spirit. How many Christians would say that they think that it's to their advantage that Jesus is no longer on earth? I mean, think about it. If I was like, hey, at your church, Jesus could come be your senior pastor. You'd be pretty excited about that. I mean, yeah, I'd be pumped, right? We've got a good pastor. You got a good pastor, but I mean, Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, (laughs) come on. Are you more excited that you've got a church? of people filled with the Spirit than you would be to have Jesus himself as your senior pastor. And most Christians, if you're honest, would say, huh, I don't know about that. And it just shows we're not taking that promise seriously. John 14, 12, Jesus said, greater works than I've done, you will do. Now think about that just on the surface for a minute. Greater works than Jesus? So which of the listeners, or you or me, would dare say, I've done a greater work than Jesus? I mean, even if you 
take out the miracles. Forget the miracles. Have you ever preached a better sermon than the Sermon on the Mount? Have you ever counseled with greater insight into the human spirit? Have you ever prayed with greater knowledge of the mind of God than Jesus did? What could you ever do that would be as great as what Jesus did? And the answer, you know, theologians tell us is that it didn't mean greater in that the, the sermon was going to be better. It was going to be greater in extent. You know, the, the amount of, uh, of things that the Holy Spirit would do when he was upon individual believers in the church would be greater than if he stayed concentrated on one individual, even if that individual were Jesus himself. So Jesus continued is, is, is basically saying, how do you learn what the Spirit of God wants you to do? Because every single believer is given a calling. Everyone's supposed to be, how do you, what's, how do you hear the voice of the Spirit? Is it a strange feeling you have in your stomach or is that indigestion? You know, does he speak through random coincidences? Does he speak through the Bible? And so in that book, I go through and I unpack, like, what does it mean to, for you to be every Christian's called? How do you discern your call and where God wants to take you? So the companion book to that is Gaining by Losing, because then it's like, this is for you as an individual. And then Gaining by Losing is, is here's what it looks like in a church when a church begins to, to, right. to live this way. Is there ever a time that you did mishear, like you misunderstood how to figure out what the Spirit was saying to you? Yeah, and- all, all the time. In fact, there's, there's a lot of ambiguity in, in the Bible. That's one of the things right. I show in Jesus Continued. Um, there is the Holy Spirit shows up in the book of Acts 59 times. 36 of the 59, he's speaking. What's odd is that it never gives us a standard way. And in fact, a lot of times it's, it doesn't tell us. Acts 13, 2, the Holy Spirit said to the church, separate Barnabas and Saul. How did he say it? Did he write it on the wall? Did everybody think the same thing at once? You think that's like a retrospective, like the Holy Spirit through the guy are saying, this is what happened. This happened. Yeah, that's a good so question. The Holy Spirit- I, I, I would want, but, but it happens too many times in that. For Acts 16, right. 7. Paul wanted to go into Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit forbid him. How? <laughs> That's true. What does yeah. that mean? Yeah. Um, Acts 15, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What does that mean? Right, that, is, that ambiguity is intentional because while we can be sure that God has spoken or is speaking through his Spirit, I think Scripture does not want us to be <laughs> the, wor- the worst things in the world have been done right after the words God just told me. So I think we're supposed to have this humility about what the Spirit is or isn't speaking to us. And so I think we don't, what Scripture says, the Spirit says. But beyond that, I'll give you one example, two examples real quick. One is um, uh, my wife and I, after we had three kids, we were praying about whether or not we should have a fourth kid. And I felt like my quiver was full with three. At no point in the week was I like, I need something else to do. I need another mouth to feed. So I felt like we could stop at three and be just fine. But uh, we also know that having and raising Children is one of the greatest ministries that you can have. And we also are big fans of adoption. So we spent a day praying and fasting about what we should do. At the end of the day of prayer and fasting, both my wife and I felt like we were leaning toward international adoption. I think the Spirit of God is saying, adopt internationally. I said, all right, tomorrow I'll start doing some investigation. The next morning, my wife wakes up, feels sick. Wow. She's pregnant. And we were doing all the things you're supposed to do to not get pregnant. So I was like, I've never had prayer answered that quickly, that decisively right? Yeah. <laughs> about it. But, but what does that mean about that feeling that I had about the spirit was saying this? You know, it's just like, that's, it's not that I, you know, the whole thing's a sham and the spirit never speaks. It's that you, you just sometimes, sometimes it takes time to see what the spirit was actually saying. All right, I'll give you one more. There's a very famous Christian leader whose name probably every listener is an older Christian leader would know. So I won't say the name, Okay. but he, um, he, that's why you should say that. I know. That's right. That's right. Well, I'll just tantalize your listeners. <laughs> that's good. We'll um, speculate later. Speculate. Well, when he was in his 50s, he felt like God had told him he was going to die that year. 
So he, he gets his staff together and says, God's told me I'm going to die to go ahead and transfer ownership to the, you know, next person and to write my magnum opus, you know, kind of my summary of my ministry. So he does all that. That was 25 years ago and he's still alive and kicking. <laughs> now, what does that mean? Does it mean he's a sham? No. I mean, this guy's respectable. He's not a flake. He just, it just means that sometimes you, you just don't know. Sometimes you can be wrong about it. And I think that's, that's intentional because God wants us to be sure about what he said in the word. And he wants us to listen for his voice, but not to ever put it on the level of scripture. Yeah. There's an openness, but not a certainty. Not a certainty. Yeah. You went to seminary. Yes. So everyone talks about what I didn't learn in seminary. Mm-hmm. What did you learn in seminary <laughs> that was like the most valuable thing that you, you were like, wow, if I didn't go to seminary. You learn how to learn and you learn how to study. And you learn specifically how to study the Bible. You know, so the best courses are going to lead you to the tools that you can then use for the rest of your life. It's rare that I am sitting down writing something or talking with you that I remember something one of my professors said and say it. It happens occasionally, but that's rare. But what I, I keep with me is here's how you use a library. Here's how you, you do this. Here's what, you know, um, how you, you research. And so that was just extremely valuable to me. Plus, it gave me a framework. You know, I, I learned systematic theology. I learned church history. And, and so I had a, a mental framework on which to hang things that I learned now. Were you like really active um, in ministry while you were doing seminary? Yeah. In fact, a little too active, you know, because okay. I had to um, back down a little bit so I could concentrate on studies. I also was, you know, at that point supporting myself mostly. And so, uh, you know, I worked, I always tell seminary students this. I mean, I worked a job, I worked in a freezer for Food Line, negative wow. um, seven below. Um, the, and, and I also worked in the kitchen of a restaurant making the Bloomin' Onion. Uh-huh. And or their version of the Bloomin' Onion, and I worked a third job as a construction guy, basically cleaned up stuff. So it was not glamorous, and it, sometimes it can be discouraging. But you know, I always tell this to seminary students now, and this is free as opposed to the rest of the stuff. Which you know, <laughs> I tell seminary students that when God calls people in the Bible to great things or anything, there's always this time of preparation. Moses, forty years in the wilderness between his call and when he actually delivered Israel. Uh, David. I mean, you know, David gets anointed by Samuel to be king, and he doesn't run down to the road, to the palace and take charge. He gets sent back to the pasture. What's that like for David? Shoveling sheep dung for the next, you know, they say about seven years before he, you know, does anything. Then you've got um, Paul. You know, Paul gets called with his dramatic call in Acts 9. If you trace the time between Acts 9, when he got called, and Acts 13, when he was appointed, it's 17 years. Wow. 17 years of him kind of doing nothing. So if that's how God trained Paul, David, and Moses, the idea that you're going to take two or three years or maybe five or six years and for him to work on your character, your work in jobs that don't seem that glamorous, you're spending a lot of time studying, that's just how God does things. I read that Paul passage just the other day. My wife and I were discussing it, and we were like, it's crazy. God forgives you so quickly because it reads very quickly. But you're saying the the actual timeline is 17 years. Well, he does forgive quickly. Let's not forget that. He he got baptized immediately. But But it doesn't mean like now you you killed us all. Now you get to be our pastor. Yeah, no. He (laughs) he immediately starts starts debating. So he he gets involved in some kind of ministries, but he's not given an official church position for 17 years. Wow. So you you were sort of that calling in college. You went to seminary. Is there a moment maybe after your ministry started where you doubted that you're cut out for that calling, that you you had serious doubts about it? You know, this is purely probably more personality than anything. 
No. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason is just because often wrong, never in doubt. I, I, I'm not a second guesser. I'm kind of like, all right, this is where we're going. Let's go. I do understand that a lot of people. Did people tell you you're, that it was wrong? Yeah. No, the people have been pretty encouraging. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, really a calling is when three things come together, affinity, ability, and affirmation. Affinity is what you're passionate about. Ability is what you can do. Affirmation is what other people tell you that God is doing through you in their lives. Yeah. That's always been present. I've always, you know, had this passion or since God called me to have this passion to do it. As it my natural abilities seem to fit well with it. And um, affirmation is people have pretty consistently told me that God used me in their lives. And so that's, that's, uh, that's been a source of confidence. But I understand not everybody's experience is that way. A lot of people, you know, I mean, David, King David was, you know, a guy that uh, the moment he got called, his brother Eliab, for Samuel 17, it's like, you don't know what you're doing. You're just proud. So a lot of people, they, they you know, they, they get resisted. And, and I know from talking to enough pastors that sometimes Monday is, is tough when you preached your heart out and there were less people there that week than the week before and the offering was terrible and, you felt like you got to know, like, I'm not here because I succeed. I'm here because God's called me. And so I think you got to be prepared for that. But, you know, I'm just, you asked a question, so I'm trying to be transparent in the sure. experience. So, yeah, that's good. Um, I'm a Southern Baptist. And All right, welcome. I have an understanding that you're running for president. <laughs> and I was like, I've got to ask about this. All right. Because I don't know that I've ever talked to someone who's run for Southern Baptist president. Oh, okay. Well, it's like a, I'm fascinated. It's like a zoo it. experiment. So go. <laughs> it's really interesting. All right. So you can't have always thought, I want to be president of the Southern Baptist Convention. No, definitely not. Uh, when did that moment happen? When did, when did that enter well, your head? Well, I love the SBC. It's an imperfect family, like all families. Yeah. You got crazy uncles mm-hmm. in the imperfect family who embarrass the family, yeah. and I'm probably one of them. It's somewhere. like it's like the global church in general. It like is, it is, yeah. yeah. And I'm I'm part of the problem, so I'm not sitting trying to be high and mighty. But I, you know, the SBC is a an or a, a denomination that's different than most denominations, and that it's not technically, it's not really a denomination because it doesn't have a hierarchy. Um, it's just a group of churches that come together for mission. And they, they contribute collectively. And so our church has 149 of its members that are supported through the International Mission Board, which is the overseas arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. And the SBC, you know, is, is, it's a huge organization that funds those 149 people. So we are very involved in it because we want to be good stewards of that. So, um, for me, it's all about, it's not about the SBC. It's about missions and it's about church planning. So it's, it became pretty clear that there were some generational things happening in the SBC right now. Um, I know not everybody listening as Southern Baptist or even familiar with what it is, but God's brought some really, um, strong leaders to the SBC. David Platt is leading the International Mission Board and he's, uh, you know, some leaders in, uh, Russell Moore with ER, the RLC, which is like the political, you know, kind of action part of the. And um, there's a lot of excitement among the young, younger generation, and they're kind of like, you know, okay, so the SBC feels like my parents' <laughs> thing, but but it's starting to feel like, hey, this is this is what we do, you know, this is. And so, um, as I'm 42, so I'm not like young, young, but um, as a representative of that younger generation, I had some older members in the SBC say, we feel like God has put it on our heart to tell you that you should at least make yourself available. My wife and I prayed about it because did um, that catch you off guard a little bit? You know, the more I've gotten involved in, you know, whether it's Southern Baptist seminaries or, you know, the, these things, I've all, you know, you've thought like, okay, th- there definitely is a need for good leaders to make sure this, this, this goes the right direction. But I wasn't expecting it. it wasn't my five, on my five year plan. 
But when the times in my life that God's led me the clearest, it's always been a combination of something he says through the church, Acts 13 too, like he did with, with Paul. And then it resonates with something God's been doing in my heart. And what God has done in my heart is given me this desire. I mean, there are 46,499 churches in the SBC, and together they give a billion dollars, a billion dollars toward missions. And so to be able to say, what's the best way that we can get the gospel to the ends of the world and plant churches and places, you know, yeah, let's, let, let's get into that conversation. And if I can help bring a new generation into that, then yeah, my yes is on the table. It's up to Southern Baptist people and the Holy Spirit whether or not that's what I should do going forward. Sure. Do you campaign? Yeah, uh, it's kind of thing. It's sort of tricky <laughs> because yeah. I, I very much agree. Adrian Rogers was an old Southern Baptist leader. Um, he's passed you know, with the Lord now, but he used to always say, "That's the kind of thing that the man doesn't seek the office; the office seeks the man." Right. I totally believe that, and yeah. so campaigning feels a little. But at the same time, you know, the Southern Baptist people ought to know what they're electing. And it seems unfair to ask them to vote based on a three-minute speech that somebody gives on your behalf at the convention. So so there's been a lot of like um, questions that people ask, interviews, and I'm saying, yeah, here's how I think this. And, and the other guys that are running are good guys. I'm, I'm friends with them. And, and Who are they? Uh, Steve Gaines. Okay. He's pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And then there is David Crosby, who is a pastor in New Orleans. Um, and do they have like different platforms? So your thing is the generational thing. Do they have other... Well, and let me be careful. I wouldn't say my, my platform is a generational because I mean, it's, yeah, I, I feel like, yeah. you, you know what I mean? But it's, I would say that we agree on the essentials. Probably the vision of where we think the SBC should go. There's going to be some differences and what's most important and how we should get there. Um, there are four things that God has put on my heart for the SBC. Let me see if I can get all four of them and I'll have a Rick Perry moment here. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, number one is that I do want to call this other generation into, um, to, to get engaged. Part of that is revisiting some of the traditional structures to ask whether or not they are the best suited for a new generation of churches. I don't want to scrap the old by any means, but you want to say, okay, what what new things is God doing in the church and how do we accommodate the giving and the mission drive of all these churches? Because I feel like you've got some old models that are not serving the new generation as well. So that's kind of one. Um, another one is going to be um, a a culture a response to our culture of grace and truth politically. You know, Southern Baptists have been pretty good on the truth part, not so good on the grace part. Right. Um, but truth without grace is fundamentalism, and grace without truth is sentimentality. Jesus had both. And I think when it comes to issues like same-sex marriage, homosexuality, um, sexuality in general, uh, when it comes to things like um, immigration, um, any of the stuff, we need to speak with grace and truth and I really want us to be able to demonstrate that tone. And so that's something that's real important. You know, other things that are, um, I think key is, um, the growth in diversity. You know, one in every five Southern Baptist churches is not Anglo, majority Anglo. Well, the SBC leadership doesn't reflect that yet. And I think it should. I think we should, you know, have, um, our African American brothers and sisters and Latino and, um, Asian that are, are in leadership positions in the SBC. So, you know, those are some of the emphases that I feel like God's put. And of course, there's also just the, radical sacrifice and, and, and engagement and mission that we want to see. So those four things are things God has put on my heart. And, I, you know, I wouldn't say different platforms, but I would say those are the ones that God's told me to lead in. If you could go back in time and uh, tell yourself, give yourself sort of one piece of advice, what would it be? Be humble. 
you know, what you know is a whole lot more than what you, or excuse me, what you don't know is a lot greater. And every point in my life, I've been both confident and impatient. I've thought I've known more than I did know and impatient, feeling like I need to get to the next level, whatever that is. When I was single, I want to be married, married to have kids, you know, when I was, I want to be a pastor, you know, just all these different things. And, And I'm just like, you know what, God, he takes time. He doesn't need you. He's not wringing his hands in heaven going, when's JD going to be ready? You know, he's just, just, you know, follow God every day and be patient and realize that, man, sin blinds you and blind spots are things you just can't see. And, and you need people around you that are just going to speak lovingly into your life. And, you know, he has shown you, old man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love mercy and walk humbly with God. That's it. What is a, is there a time where you were impatient and you ended up in a situation that you weren't ready for? Yeah, all the time. There's just been, you know, just I look back and look and, and, and regret that some of the things God was trying to teach me in the pasture, I probably didn't learn. I had to learn the hard way later because, you know, I just rushed through the pasture. You know, David in the pasture learned to fight the lion and the bear. That's where he got the skill to, to slay a lion. That's an important skill for every pastor. I yeah, think. the lion and the bear, right? To fight the lion and the bear. <laughs> now, literally, you need to be able to kill a bear uh-huh. with your bare hands. <laughs> and... um he, uh, you know, that's where most likely he wrote the 23rd Psalm out on a lonely pasture somewhere. And I'm sure he was like, when am I going to be? God told me I should be king. When am I going to be in the palace? He wrote a psalm that has brought comfort to more Christians going through trial than any other psalm that's ever been written. Um, I'm glad for David's pasture, and I don't want to I don't want to overlook the one that God gives me either. Do you have your version of the 23rd Psalm, you think? I do. Can I sing it for your listeners right now? <laughs> no, I mean, like, do you have a thing that do you have a thing that you did when you were in the pasture? Kind of bummed out. Yeah, that you I mean, made you know, and you're really glad. Yeah, just it, it, not so much a, a poem I wrote. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> as much as it is just you know that some of these lessons of here's what it means to be satisfied in God. Here's what it means to really trust Him. Um, you know how much is the gospel worth to me? Am I am I faithful to share Christ with the person sitting next to me on the plane, or you know do I require a big audience and a lot of attention, a lot of affirmation in order to do it? Is that what keeps you from sharing with people on the plane? Because that's not what keeps me from doing it. Is well, yeah. Well, but well. Maybe I ought to re-say that. Um, are you going to obey when nobody is going to – Is nobody gonna, so, you know, it's hard to, to strike up a conversation. It's hard to love your neighbor. But, you know, I do really well when I got a lot of people praising me for what I'm doing. And when nobody's going to praise me, then I lose my motivation. Yeah. I, I, just, I just got fascinated by the plane thing because like, people share that all the time, and I can't do it. You can't do I it? I can't share with a guy on the plane because it's like, that's awkward. Yeah. I don't know. Well, that's I'll tell you me. this. I have some awesome planes evangelism stories. Uh-huh. I could regale you for hours with plane <laughs> evangelism stories. Uh-huh. But what people don't realize is that for every one story I tell that's cool, mm-hmm. there are four, two of which like literally crash and burn. The other two are just, they don't go anywhere. They're kind of boring. Okay, like, oh. tell a crash and born, burn story. Oh, like, uh, you know, um, somebody, oh, yeah, the other day I'm, I'm sitting on a plane and I struck up a conversation and the guy's like, well, he says, I just don't believe the Bible. And why not? Well, he starts yelling at me on the, I'm literally on the plane and everybody within five rows is listening as this guy just, what was his problem? Just, you know, the Bible teaches this and it shouldn't, you know, this and that. And you're a hypocrite and you're a bad person. And right. you know, how do you believe this? And are you in the end of all? I mean, just everything. And I'm kind of. touched a nerve, apparently. I touched a nerve, yeah. you know. And so that's not the story you tell at the revival that everybody starts weeping at and saying, you yeah. know, praise God. But it's part of the experience. 
You've been listening to The Calling. J.D. Greer is the pastor of Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and the author of Gaining by Losing. You can follow him on Twitter at J.D. Greer. That's J-D-G-R-E-E-A-R. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us so very much. The Calling is produced by Cray Allred. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0.